Fans of the Dynasty Invest podcast, if you feel like there was one particular episode in the back catalogue in the anthology of Dynasty Invest podcast episodes that really, really, really was massively valuable to you, feel free to share that with a fellow dental colleague who's in a similar position so their understanding of finance can be elevated and they can hit the next level of financial success in their life. Also, as well as that, if you could take two seconds to rate and review this podcast, it would mean the world to me. What that would mean is that it drives this podcast further in terms of reach so that more dentists across the world can be able to benefit from the knowledge contained therein. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Dentists Who Invest podcast. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Dentistry Invest podcast, one of the first podcasts of the year with a familiar face, a man who's becoming a familiar face in the podcast, Bilal Ahmed, and he is here to share today the best ways that we as dentists can invest in limited companies and how we might direct the ownership of our practice. Should we do it as a sole trader? Should we do it as a limited company? All of this and more to be found in this podcast. Bilal, how are you today? I'm good, James. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, my friend, and thanks for penciling us in because this is tax season, season spelled S-Z-Z-N as they, as they do on the internet forums, or at least that I've seen anyway, and I know that you're a very busy man, so thank you so much for that. So Bilal, for those who don't know you, I know that you've been on the podcast a few times, but maybe a quick intro, who you are, what you do for people who have yet to familiarize themselves with you or people who haven't seen those episodes. I appreciate that, James. So um, my name's Bilal. I'm Chief Accountant at Heathrow Green. We specialize uh, in dentists uh, and dental practices and the whole dental journey, really. So uh, from brand new associate all the way to practice ownership and exit on your investments. But we we deal with with people across the entire um, life cycle of dentistry, as I like to call it. 10 out of 10, top stuff. So Bilal, we're talking about limited companies Limited, limited companies are a little bit like black magic to some dentists who may not necessarily have had the time to educate themselves. Maybe you can set the scene on what we're going to talk about today, paint a picture that's really simple, break it right down, pretend like you're explaining it to someone who has no experience on finance whatsoever. So what we're going to talk about today, James, is, is a popular question. So I'll give you a bit about my background. So uh, my background is corporate accounting, so not sort of traditional uh, taxis and accounting. Mine was very much, if you're not adding value, what are you doing as an accountant? Um, and the way we work is because we get to see what you're doing in real time, we then make suggestions. So we we will never give you investment advice. That's not what we do. So uh, we leave that to the professionals. We leave that to the financial advisors. What we'll do is talk about the structure, what you can and can't do, or more importantly, how you can do it more efficiently, because the more tax you save leaves more money behind to invest. And that's that the ultimate. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Tax yeah. planning, there's an entire industry based on that. So that that's what we do. And that's what we're going to do today. So we're going to talk about not just limited company, but we're going to talk about both sole trader and limited company, because... Uh, as we all know, limited company is, isn't always the right option for everybody. Um, the biggest thing to consider with them, obviously, is superannuation that says the pension scheme might be the reason that you don't want to do it. But it's different strokes for different folks. But we talk about both aspects and the journey being the same. And we're going to look at it from both angles. Cool, 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 cool. That sounds really good. And I'm sure there'll be lots to learn on today's episode. So, Bilal, let's start from the start. Seems logical, seems reasonable. Put it simply, how should we set up? Cool. So it, it really depends on how you're set up currently. So if you're currently a um, a partnership or a sole trader making loads of money and you can't operate by a limited company, then it's how do we move your money after you pay tax to investments? Now, one thing that we want to talk about here is 
what you invest in to generate wealth or grow is different to what you invest in your business. So we get something called an annual investment allowance. So when you go buy a new ITO scanner, a new x-ray machine, things like that, they are classed as investments in your business and they are tax deductible. When you now want to do stocks and shares, property um, or sort of new ventures, that kind of thing, you have to account for your tax first. So if you're a sole trader or a partnership, you pay whatever rate of tax you're paying. So if you're earning over 150K, you pay your 45% tax and then you're left with the money to then go invest in. Um, and then structure beyond that is obviously limited company being the, the being a very popular option at the moment is once you've accounted for your corporation tax, you've taken out your dividends, what's left in the business. And we go through that in a lot of detail in our previous podcast. So we're not going to sort of languish on that point too much, but it's a case of be efficient. Don't take all your money out of your limited company. What do you do with the amount that's left? If you've got no desire to, to invest in your business and just take all the money out every year, then a limited company is probably not the right option for you. So but if, but this is very much dentists who invest. So I think this is this is this is geared towards a very key demographic for you. Yeah. So I always think there's a bit of an illusion that investing in your limited company is always the most tax efficient way to do it. It's not always, is it? And no. quite oftentimes, for probably for the majority of people, it's actually cheaper. It's actually more tax efficient to get it in your personal accounts and then invest through an ISA, SIP, GIA, whatever you plan yeah. to do. Because let's not forget, when you're investing through a GIA, general investment account, you've got your 12,300 capital gains allowance completely tax-free. And anything that yeah. is in an ISA, up to 20,000 in an ISA, yeah, you get taxed on the way in beforehand. But if your tax rate is the basic one, then it's going to be 20% plus your plus your national insurance, which isn't too far off corporation tax yeah. anyway. You know what I mean? So again, just as you said, we're not going to languish on it too much. Let's just jump back to those that are interested in limited companies. What sort of people should be looking at investing through a limited company? People with a lot of money in a company that they can extract, just like you said, just a quick brief summary of those sorts of people. So so let's let's talk about that then. So with with the type of people that want, want to invest in a limited company, I think you hit the absolute nail on the head in that in your in your previous statement. There is if your goal is to take all the money out of the business, whatever you invest, you need to live off. Limited company is probably not going to be the best way to do it because first you've got to pay nineteen percent corporation tax on the returns in your investment, and then you've got to pay your dividend tax, which is if you oh, everything we assume here is going to be at the higher rate dividend tax. So you're either going to pay thirty two and a half percent or thirty eight and a half percent dividend tax, which is about which is over fifty percent. Whereas if you did that as a sole trader and you suffer the tax on the way in anyway, is you would then you you would then pay capital gains tax at a lower tax rate. So you would either pay capital gains tax at well, we're going to assume the higher rate. So you pay capital gains tax at twenty percent on anything over twelve twelve point three k. So from how you want to extract your money, that really governs how we set you up in the first instance. The second bit to consider within that is is what do you want to do long term with all of that, um, and then the type of investment always is is, is really important. So I think this is. A man after your own heart, crypto. If your investment's got the ability to go 10, 20, 30x, let's let's use Bitcoin as an example. Over a year, it went from 3K to, to, to well, nearly 60K. Um, so at the start of lockdown to, to, to the end, it nearly, well, what did it peak at? About 60, 65K? Yeah, well, that number up? it went up to about 64K in end of February time. Of course, as of today, it's right back down to, I believe it's 40 off the top of my head. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, highly volatile. But yeah, this is the thing. If Bitcoin did a six time, did a did. Let me just do the math in my head. And over a twenty times from the start of lockdown yeah. to the beginning of February. So yeah, definitely a explosive asset, highly volatile, and that leads into you were just going to you just before I jumped in there, you were about to go somewhere with that. 
Yeah. So let's talk about the tax on that. So let's say you were going to buy a whole coin. Look, hindsight is a great teacher, but let's say you took out 3K at your limited company and paid the tax on that. You know, 19% corporation tax is paid. You then paid your 32 and offset dividend tax. You're now left, left with the 3K to go invest in Bitcoin. That's now gone 20X. That's now worth 60K, for instance. That's now worth 60K. And if you wanted to cash out, you'd cash the whole thing out. Your gain is now 57K. You, your first 12.3K is tax-free, and then you pay 20% tax. So overall, you're far better in from a tax perspective in that scenario than if you'd done it through a limited company. Because if you did it via a limited company, um, depending on your asset classification, you have to revalue your assets every year, and you pay tax on the revaluation whether you've liquidated or not. So if, you're, if your on-paper valuation has grown by X, um, then you pay tax on that 57K at 19% corporation tax before you've even taken it out. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah. So it's not always not always would assume that it's cheaper. Correct. So if your goal is quick flips, uh, immediate gains, then it's not worth it. If you're looking for a longer term growth and exit strategy, then a limited company is, is a more tax efficient structure. So uh, before we jump on, is there anything you want to add in that? No, all makes sense. And I believe as well from my conversations with accountants and people in the finance world, it can also be advisable, not just if you're playing the long game, but let's say you have a huge lump sum of money in your business and it's going to be really tax inefficient for you to withdraw that into your personal account, then that can be another instance, if I'm correct. Correct. So so the word we use for that is reserves. So if you've built up loads of reserves, um, so just give me a second, I just need to mute my... Totally you cool. built up, yeah. So yeah, I should, uh, give me a second. I should mute this. Yeah, that's all right. No worries, my friend. Yeah, we good. Cool. So um, reserves. So if there's loads of cash built up in the company, what do you do with it? It can be massively inefficient to take it out. But we are going to cover that uh, as part one of the final points today. We talk about that on on exit and what that looks like. So if you've got masses of cash reserves built up, what is it? Uh, what can you do with it? Okay, awesome, brilliant. So this leads very nicely into us having a little bit of a conversation about the vehicles that we can use within a limited company because they are much less known. So when you're in, when we're talking about personal accounts, there's only three, well, three main ones anyway. There's a SIP, there's an ISA, and there's a GIA. So what are the equivalents in the limited company world? What should we know about? So um, a SIP is, so you can still invest in a SIP by your limited company, but it goes to you as the person. The company doesn't have a SIP. Um, one thing to note when we talk about a limited company and a sole trader is a limited company is a separate re- legal entity. So uh, as a separate legal entity, it can't have an ISA. So a limited company can't have an ISA. Uh, it can't have um, SIPs or anything like that, but it can invest in them on your behalf. And it's a tax efficient way to pay into your pension on your behalf. So it's uh, it's a really good way to extract money. But for, 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 for today's perspective, I think one of the things that one of the most popular questions I get asked is what do I do with my money? How do I divest? So we're going to look at four different asset classifications now. These aren't these aren't you know by by any definition of asset classification. This is just how we're going to break up the conversation. So the first is we're going to talk about buying into a practice or setting up a practice. So we're we'll talking about growth. Um, we're going to talk about buying rental properties. So we'll talk about divesting altogether. Uh, we're going to talk about stocks and shares. Uh, how you invest in other companies. So we we'll talk about passive income, and then we're going to talk about crypto, which we've already touched on. But James, you'll you'll, you'll be the man leading the way on that one. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Good man. So if we jump into buying a practice now, I mean, you could probably give me some more flavor on this. How popular do you think this is as, a, as an option for, for most dentists today?
Real quick guys, I've put together a special report for dentists entitled The 7 Costly and Potentially Disastrous Mistakes that dentists make whenever it comes to their finances. Most of the time dentists are going through these issues and they don't even necessarily realize that they're happening until they have their eyes opened and that is the purpose of this report. You can go ahead and receive your free report by heading on over to www.dentistuinvest.com forward slash podcast report or alternatively you can download it using the link in the description. This report details these seven most common issues. However, most importantly, it also shows you how to fix them. I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Diminishing, but still still on the radar. I don't have any figures. Maybe that's a poll that we could make at some point on Dentists Who Invest. Who would like to buy a dental practice? Anybody who, 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 who among us who has never owned a practice would still like to buy a dental practice in 2021. There's an interesting poll in the making. I would say anecdotally, maybe 10%, 20% of associates around about my age group, thirties, late twenties would be interested in doing that. No hard figures, but there's a poll in the making. I I would agree with those numbers. So certainly from our client base, we we see that that sort of percentage where um it's i think statistically it's something like i think it's one in one in 30 uh will go on to make something a quarter million a year um with that one in 30 it's it, it can be a mix of a really specialist associate or a practice owner yeah. now um practice ownership is becoming it, well i say becoming from our client base it's about 20 percent that, that do want to make that step will they make that step is a different thing altogether and then within that is what type of practice will they uh, will they buy so if you're if you're like our friend Jabir, he will not touch an NHS uh, NHS contract with a laminated barge pole. So it's it, and I think that's becoming a more popular uh, way to go. I mean, I put out um, I put out a poll on my Instagram recently asking, did you would you consider opting out of the NHS at some point? So if you're if you're a dentist, an associate dentist at the moment, stepping away from NHS, would you then make that step into um, NHS acquisition? It's unlikely. But would you still set up a squat practice or a boutique clinic that specialized in a range of private treatments that is proven to be really popular, especially right now through a limited company where you get the super deduction, where any investment you make in your practice, where historically you would get 19% corporation tax relief, that's been uplifted to 24.7%. So you're getting back, you're, you're getting a tax deduction of 24.7p 20, on every pound you invest in your practice. So that's that's being a re- that, that's becoming a really 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 uh, attractive option at the moment. That's certainly a path that we're going down. So my wife's a dentist. That's the path that we're going down. So we tried to buy an NHS practice in 2019. The numbers didn't sit well with us. Um, and then sitting back and having a look and saying, well, is is NHS the way we want to go? Can can we create a brand on the back of that? Probably not. Uh, but it would have been quite helpful during COVID. But that's sort of unique circumstance. So we don't go through that. So what we're going to look at then is. Um, buying a mixed practice because if you went purely uh, private then you just do the, the latter part that we're going to talk about but let's put for balance let's talk about purchasing a mixed practice so when we're going to talk about NHS, a mixed practice we're going to talk about three three components with it or four components within that which would be the nhs contract it's the private revenue based on the back of that plus the goodwill generally that those two numbers intertwined uh, because you can't value the, the private element but you can value an nhs contract because sort of it is what it is and then you get the land and buildings. So if you're acquiring the freehold of the property as well via mortgage or loan, however you're buying it, those are generally the components you're buying. So you're buying the NHS contract, you're buying the private goodwill, and you're buying the, the land and buildings, the freehold. So 
if you were a sole trader today or if you're an existing dental partnership and you want to buy another NHS contract, you can either buy the whole thing and then continue to run it as a partnership and then you pay tax uh, at the higher tax rate for anything you, uh, you, you extract over 150k. However, from an investment perspective, you can treat that acquisition as, as uh, in, its, in its individual components because your biggest hurdle uh, to overcome is the first bit that says if you're uh, if you're an existing NHS practice owner, you're already maxing out your uh, superannuation contribution that you could pay into your pension anyway. So you get tapered relief on the back of that anyway. So would you then buy your second practice as an um, as a sole trader or partnership? Probably not. It's, it's less attractive at that point. The second hurdle to overcome is whether the PCT will even let you buy it as a limited company. Because uh, and if they do let you buy it as a limited company, they might suppress the UDA value. So. If they then suppress the UDA value, you've now got to reevaluate your numbers to see it's even, even if it's worth buying. And is it worth buying at the rate that you agreed it at? And the seller's less likely to remove their price because you're trying to buy it through the company because that, that becomes your problem, not the seller's problem. So if let, let's come back. Let's say the PCT say, no, no, we're, we're not letting you buy it as a limited company. You can still depend. You can work with your lender to buy it as, as separate components. So you buy the NHS contract. Uh, and you run that as a partnership or a sole trader, and you pay your, your rate of tax on it. You buy the private and the goodwill through a limited company, and you buy the freehold of the land and buildings through a limited company as well. Like two separate limited companies, and we'll go on why the separate limited companies when we talk specifically about rental properties. But that's three separate components that you can now purchase. In this example, if you, if if it was say a practice generating half a million pound profit, and let's say that was split fifty fifty between NHS income and private income. Your that's 250 going to your sole trader account, of which you're paying 45% tax because you're earning over 150k. That's 250 grand going into the limited company now. Um, and in that is in that scenario, instead of paying 45% tax on the private income, you're now only paying 19% corporation tax on the private income. And that's that that that's a cash saving of about 65 grand. And that leaves more money left over to pay to to, to subsequently invest in other ventures. Um, subsequently. The limited company also owns the uh, land and buildings, which it now gets to charge rent to the partnership or the sole trader into, and and the, the partner and the private element. So that's now rental prop, rental income going into your rental property portfolio, which is now also attracting nineteen percent corporation tax. So you're creating these little pockets of investments just from one acquisition, which then says if James now wants to go buy subsequent properties, you just buy that through James Martin Properties. If you now want to set up a squat practice somewhere that just does Invisalign and cosmetic and um, cosmetic dentistry, you've got the reserves built up into the dental limited company, which you can use the funds to go do that. Um, and then with that, there's, a, there's other considerations. There's legal considerations, there's CQC registration considerations, because you've got to run, you're running two separate practices under one building. So the private's considered its own practice, NHS is considered its own practice. But you've now got to split them up that says they are treated as separate businesses, separate CQC registrations, bit of admin that goes around it. But for 65 grand, I'm sure we'll find a way. That is so clever. How, how common is that setup? It's it's fairly common on entry. Um, so if th- this is what we do. I mean, this is what we, 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 we eschew. Uh, I'm quite evangelical about this. Is if, if you speak to your accountant ahead of time, it's very easy to set up. You work with your lenders, you work with a buyer. It's all quite easy to set up. However, if you bought it, and then want to try and undo it, it's quite expensive. And it's probably not worth doing it that way. And then if you're an established practice, there's so much to consider um, if you're trying to then make those make those changes uh, in real time. 
Because if you're now an established practice, you want to make a sale, you've got to buy the taxes and capital gains that you, you, you'll incur can become quite expensive. But the the first step you can take is, is splitting out your private and your NHS income. And that is open to most existing practices. There's just some work that has to be done around how you transfer some of the costs, like overhead costs, for instance. Like how do you how do you recharge your nurses over to um, the, the how do you split your your revenue, your overhead costs according to the split between NHS and private income? So, bit of admin that goes in the back of it, but we are working on an example at the moment. And you know, I quite enjoy these kinds of things because it's 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 mental arithmetic and it's 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 quite it's quite fun. That's awesome. Okay, cool. Anything else you'd like to say on that, or shall we move on to property? So. One thing I want to talk about just before we move on to that is when you've got that set up. So, so let's say you've gone into this setup, you bought your you bought your practice, you now got your three individual components. Um, if you now want to sell, and let's let's talk about exit, is if you want to sell the NHS contract, you can. Um, if you want to sell all three components, you can. If you want to sell each individual component, you can. So you could sell the private separately, you could sell the NHS contract separately, and you could sell the um, the, the, the private, the, the, the London building separately. Or if you've come to the point in your career that you, you now want to live the passive lifestyle and you, you've generated enough wealth to now use that wealth to do what you want, you could keep the London buildings, still charge the, the new owner the rent for the building, and they would buy the NHS and the private um, portfolio off you. Um, so this is where it becomes quite tax efficient on the other end, because if you were to do that for the limited company, you'd only pay ten percent on ten percent tax on liquidated shares. Um, you would you would pay your capital gains tax on selling an NHS contract. You haven't sold the property income. When you're doing things like that, is if you were going to sell the um, the private element, the private limited company back to whoever or to whoever was going to buy it, and claimed entrepreneurs relief, you can't go back to that that trade within three years. Right. Okay. So so these are all really really important things to consider. But I think that's that 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 sort of draws a line under that one that says whether you're currently an NHS con, uh, whether you're currently a sole trader or currently a limited company, those options still exist to you because if you're currently a limited company and you've got all these cash reserves built up, you can use all of that to buy it. Um, if you can't buy all of it, you can buy the, the individual components. If you're currently a sole trader, you can again do the same sort of setup. You've just got to split everything else out. Right. Awesome. Super interesting. Okay. Cool. So I believe the next thing we were going to segue into was property. Yeah, so pro- property is really, really straightforward. So uh, there's a post on my Instagram about uh, buy-to-lets on and the, the tax implications of investing into a buy-to-let. And again, we're assuming everyone's a higher rate taxpayer uh, or uh, intermediate rate, so the um, not the basic rate, not the twenty percent rate. So we're either looking at forty or forty-five percent, but for simple math, we'll look at forty percent. So if you're currently, um, if you're looking to invest in a buy-to-let property. And you go buy it in your own name. So James goes and buys a rental property generating £10,000 a year in rental income after expenses. Expenses are sort of minor for things like you know, maintenance, insurance, um, legal fees, things like that. You can no longer claim your interest as an expense. Right. So if your mortgage payments, and we're talking interest-only mortgage, if your mortgage payments amount to, let's say, £5,000 a year, historically, it'd be £10,000 worth of profit. Five thousand pounds worth of expenses, and then you pay tax on the other five k. So the, the tax on the other five k at forty percent would be about two grand. However, you can't do that anymore. So what what HMRC says, we're going to tax you on the whole ten k, regardless of the interest payments. Now, so you will get taxed on the whole amount. So it's forty percent on the ten k, four grand. Then you get a twenty percent flat rate relief 
on the interest payment. So in this example, so you, you, you've got 4K tax, your, your interest payments come to 5K, you get 20% of that is knocked off your taxable, so you pay 3K in tax now. So it's cost you £1,000 a year more to run it that way. Whereas if you had bought that same property via a uh, property limited company, the company can came, claim the interest as an expense. So straight away, we're now comparing tax on 5K as opposed to 10K, and, it only, and the company only pays tax at 19%. So that's more cash left over. I've got a detailed example on my Instagram, so which is at Ethel Green if anybody wants to check that out. But fundamentally, that exists. So limited companies can claim the interest, pay lower rate of corporation tax. Uh, sole traders can't. Now, within that is really is, do you need to live off the income? So if you need to live off the income, then it's probably not going to be worthwhile because you're paying 19% corporation tax, then you're going to pay 32.5% dividend tax. So 51% versus the 3K, odds and sods, it's not going to be worth doing. Buy it in your own name, it's fine. Um, if you if if you look at the longer term strategy, and this is what sort of my, my wife and my wife and I do, as isn't to live off the income, as is to live off the income when we retire and have something to pass to our kids, um, because property prices are only going one way, and it's getting more and more, it's getting harder and harder to get onto the ladder, and we don't want our kids to face that position. So we will hand that to our kids, which will go on um, how we do that at a later date. So. Um, we, where our, our strategy is not to have the rental income to live off now, but it will be at a later date. So at a later date, um, our theoretically we'd be under the fifty k threshold. So our dividend tax on that would only be seven and a half percent. So it's worth doing at that point. So just sort of go back a step. If your goal is to invest in property, live off the income, do it in your own name. Uh, if your goal is to save for the future, then do it via a limited company because then any proceeds you're now generating at the lower tax rate, you can now reinvest back into your business and buy subsequent properties. Furthermore, if you're a limited company and you've got reserves, you can loan the buy-to-let company the, the deposit to buy subsequent properties, and that's what you do with the reserves. So James Martin Properties will owe James Martin Dentistry uh, or James Martin um, Crypto King the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the the deposit amount, and that's how that money moves back and forth. How do you know the name of my limited company? If you um, if you are, if you're currently a sole trader and you and you want to invest in buy to lets, then again set the limited company if that's the way you want to go, and you can loan the money there. And let's say you loan the buy to let company fifty k, and you want to take fifty k back out. That's a loan repayment, not income, so you don't get taxed on. Um, oh. So that's quite important. How do the terms on that work then? Can you loan it to someone indefinitely, or does it have to be some sort of minimum repayment by law? So it has to represent market terms. Right. So it's something called an arm's length transaction that says if if James is going to loan me money, it would it would have to be on the same terms that James would loan loan himself money. So it's referred to an arm's length transaction. So it has to represent market terms. Okay, so Bank of England base rate. Yeah, plus, plus or minus a couple of percent. Yeah, awesome. So why you would have to do that through a separate limited company is more from a risk perspective from the lender. So it's not because we want to charge more fees. It's mainly because from a from a risk perspective, a lender doesn't want to see any other trade going through that. So if, if you were to buy it through your dentistry limited company, a lender will see that as too high risk um, because their, their, their investment could be put at risk by any sort of litigation or anything like that. So they want to see a separate limited company, which has no other external forces against it, which they would then lend against. So that's the only consideration when setting up, when, when looking to invest in properties via a limited company, it has to be a standalone limited company. And for those of you wanting to, to Google it, it's a, it's an SPV or a special purpose vehicle. So Bilal, all this talks about stocks 
leads us in very nicely to where we outlined this conversation is going to go next. And that is, of course, how we might invest in stocks through our limited company. Cool. So it, it, it's a really straightforward process. So wherever, where previously there's quite a bit of complexity with SPVs or how you purchase a, a practice, it, it's actually dead straightforward with, dead straightforward with uh, stocks and shares. You, your account just has to be in the name of the limited company. So if you've got these masses of reserves and you want to start investing in other companies, you can use the the assets the, the assets that exist for that. Uh, sorry, the reserves that exist to buy those assets. So if you're buying stocks and shares, dead straightforward. Uh, the account just has to be in the limited company's name because the limited company is the person that owns um, the wallet, the exchange, the account, uh, and you can go and invest. So it's there's no restriction on the things you can and can't invest in. It's just the companies that will uh, you might be restricted on the companies that will do it for you. So, but your mainstream ones you shouldn't have any issues doing that with. But then the way again with limited companies, how you measure the value of an asset classification is you have to be consistent across all the assets. So you couldn't say, well, I'm going to treat these ones differently to these ones and these ones differently to these ones. So if you want to, um, if you revalue your assets every year, uh, in revalue investments, and if that investment's gone up, then you pay corporation tax on the gain. If it goes down, then it offsets your corporation tax you've made elsewhere. So you could be quite smart with it that says, well, if my if my business has made had an absolutely astounding year, but my investment portfolio has actually taken a bath, you could offset one with the other. That's awesome. And it's important to mention as well that that would only occur, you would only pay corporation tax if you crystallize the gain. Just no. Like, so, oh, no, I'm no. glad I asked that then because that yeah. changes things. It does change things. So this is what I was saying about for, where when you treat an asset classification. So if your treatment on asset classification is I will revalue my assets on disposal, um, then you just you you value them as and when they you know, when you come to sell them, and but you have to treat every single asset that fits that classification the exact same way. Otherwise, if you say for tax purposes or for business purposes, I want to revalue my assets every year. Now think about growth. Think about trajectory. Think about if you if you've put ten thousand pounds down on investments now worth a million pounds, you want to not borrow. You now want to borrow against that. The lender's going to want to see your balance sheet showing that million pound asset. Therefore, you have to revalue it. Now, if you then revalue it, then you've made a gain, um, which which then has to be um, factored into your tax calculations. But then would that not mean that if you own a property through a limited company, that if the property's value appreciates, that you owe corporation tax on the appreciate the amount that it's appreciated by? Is that correct? You made a gain, yeah. So, uh, which is why some people, which is why SPVs come into hand, you don't revalue your asset. Right. I'm learning so much today. This is gold dust. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, cool. Anything else you'd like to say about stocks? Uh, again, it goes back down to what your what your goals are. So, if you're if you're betting on Tesla, and I say betting, betting's not the wrong it's the wrong word. If you're investing in Tesla and you're expecting it to gain to take the money out, then think about it on what the potential growth is, the volatility, what your what your investment strategy is. Because if the gains far outweigh the initial tax hit, then you're better off taking the money out, investing into it in your own name. Um, but again, it all all depends on what your what your strategy is. Wow. So something to think about 110%. We said the C word a few times, crypto. How would you advise investing in crypto in a limited company? Anything we should be aware of? Yeah. So uh, just debunk. This is not advice. This is how, not not, not advice on how. So just protect myself there. (laughs) So um, not trying to encrypt Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Crypto is a really, 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 really interesting one. Um, Mainly because the potential gains on offer 
are far more tax efficient to pay the personal tax on them. Now, if you're going to be let let us sort of take a step back here because crypto is the last one in the in the structure. So what we'll talk about is risk. Whatever you invest in personally, if it goes the other way and you leverage the, the trade against it, you're liable for that for, for 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 the other end of it. Now, if you did it through a limited company, a limited company is a separate legal entity to you personally. Therefore, if that limited company starts racking up loads of debt, it's the company that's liable for it. Yeah. Um, so it's it's terrible. But if you if you if you started doing some very risky bets on crypto and you went the other way, you and it was via a separate limited company, you could and you could just shut down that limited company. Um, it might well it probably will impact your ability to act as a director for other companies. You might get disbarred, uh, but then your other assets are still protected. And that's that's the way to look at it. And we're going to go into that in a, in a bit more detail as we wrap this up. But crypto is a really interesting one. So. If um, we, we use the uh, example of um, Tesla that bought a boatload of Bitcoin, when they made a gain, it, it increased their, their their corporate position because they, they had all this money that, that made their balance sheet look better because they made all these ridiculous gains on, on crypto and then they started liquidating their, their, their position. They sold a little bit, but then all that is then taxable gain. Um, and conversely, if it went the other way, it would have reduced their reduced their tax position, but it it really depends on what your goal is. If you're just going to hold and sit on it for forever, if you're trying to buy you know pe- penny crypto and see where it goes in 10, 15 years, buy it in your own name. The the, the CGT position is far better than the corporation tax position because you paying a minimal amount on a, uh, you paying thirty two percent dividend tax on a very small amount of money that could potentially go twenty thirty x is far better than doing it through the limited company, saving the nineteen percent corporation tax, then taking it out. Yeah, I hear you. Question, Bilal, as well, because of the crystallized gain thing, would that mean that you have to revalue your crypto every once in no. a while? Does it not work like that? No, for personal tax, it's different. For So companies don't pay capital gains tax. Companies just pay corporation tax. There's no capital gains for, for, for a limited company. Oh, oh, sorry, in case that wasn't clear, I meant within a limited company. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. so, so it's just, it's crystallized gains. It's it's gains as revaluation, depending on what your, what your position is. If you're if your policy, internal policy, is only revalue and disposal, then you would pay the the corporation tax on the disposal of the asset. No, I get it. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Well, we're tying up a lot of loose ends in, in uh, my mind today because these are all questions that I had about limited companies. This is this is awesome. Anything else you'd like to say about crypto? No, not 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 on that. I think I think you're the man. You're the man on crypto. I I'm, I'm very much a. Uh, very, very much a novice in that in that regard. So we'll we'll park that one. Oh, there's two things I want to talk about: is different different investment classifications, and again, sole trader, limited company. And I think I want to go on to structure at this point. Awesome. Okay, let's jump straight in with that then, with two feet in both hands. Structure. Let's go. <laughs> so, so when we talk about corporate structure, now whether your entry point into the structure is either as a sole trader or a limited company is is neither here nor there. But where. Where the where, where our last podcast left, well, not the last podcast, the, the the one where we talked about sole trader versus limited company, because we the last thing we spoke about on that was structure, and we touched on it very briefly. So, want to use this opportunity to talk about it a bit more because it was a very popular topic. Is when when we're looking at a limited company, we're looking at risk. So, how do we de-risk your position? So, if your core business is dentistry, and that's where you make all your money. And that's where all the volatility is. And it, and it is volatile because, you know, it's deeply litigious and there, there's things, there's external factors that could influence if someone sees you with vicarious liability and all that going on at the moment as well. So if you now start making investments in property limited company sideways is um, JM dentistry loans, JM properties, 
100 grand to go start buying properties. If JM Dentistry is ever sued, technically on JM uh, Dentistry's balance sheet, there's a loan that's owed to it. So someone owes it money. Therefore, they can recall that loan if you were ever sued to then, but then you would have to liquidate your properties to repay the loan to then pay it back. So that's where the risk factor comes in. How we de-risk that is by putting a holding company in. So what the holding company does is it owns all the shares in the subsets. So you no longer own the shares in any of the companies other than the holding company. The holding company never trades, doesn't even hold, hold a mobile phone. We never expose the holding company to any form of risk. Um, so when JM Dentistry makes £100,000 profit, pays its £19,000 corporation tax, £81,000 left over, that gets paid up to JM Holdings as a dividend. It then pays that down to as a loan to the property company. So if an, if in a later date, and now let's say JM Dentistry becomes a squat practice somewhere where you've set your own boutique private dentistry, if you wanted to sell that, there's no other loans to factor in. So someone buying that will say, "Ooh, this why is it owed a million pounds from this?" And it's 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 very finicky to unwind all of that. Uh, whereas that's where the structure is. And from a risk perspective, is you can then sell off individual business units, or the money always goes up to the holding company. Now, from a long term perspective, depending on what your strategy is. Um, you know, I've got two kids. My mind is very much focused on what can I leave behind for them in the most tax efficient manner. Is any dividends now earned in any of the companies all go up to the holding company? I then extract my 50k. My wife extracts her 50k. Once my kids are over 18, I can then add them as shareholders and directors of the holding company, and I can pay for their university fees through through the holding company that's built up its reserves. As I then pass on, uh, and I decide I want to now hand over my business interest over to my kids, I sell them my shares or I gift them my shares from an inheritance tax planning, which is a separate podcast altogether. So, but from an inheritance perspective, I'm no longer giving one of my kids two properties here, which has got capital gains tax implications and inheritance tax implications. Uh, if I gift it, I've got their life for seven years. Trying to unpick all of that becomes far more difficult than just handing over shares in a company. Now, from a trust perspective, and again, this is probably a separate podcast, is I could move all my shares into a trust from the holding company, which owns all the subsets. So whilst I'm living, I still benefit from the income that's generated. Once I pass on, and um, then the, the trust is enacted. And this is where the longer term implications become really, really, really interesting is, you know, if you want to close everything down, close off all the entities and you own the shares and all the entities um, and all this cash that's built up into them, you can then, you, you just liquidate the shares. So you shut it all down, shut down everything. Um, and then you pay 10% entrepreneurs tax, providing providing you meet the conditions for that. And then you sit off into the sunset with all your cash. But I think for, for me personally, I don't think that's, I think that's a great idea, but I don't think that's ever done that way not very rarely is is does everyone liquid at the entire portfolio because it doesn't make sense i mean i, I i'm probably gonna put out a reel about this there was um a wealthy land baron who passed well, i think it was in the last decade or something he left nine billion pounds worth of property to his son who was 21 at the time and paid zero tax um, and that's that's why this system exists now whether you're a sole trader or, or a limited company the the holding position could still exist because if your holding company was the one that you owned, your property company in, your crypto company, but all your income is still earned from a sole trader, it's the sole trader that makes the loan to the holding company and it owes, and then it still has its subsets. So, so that structure can still work. It's just where does that initial source of income still come from? And then so from a structure perspective, that can always work. So this is where holding companies become really important to de-risk your investment strategy and also how to move money around between the entities and then how to exit any one of the individual business units. Yeah, 110%. Trusts and inheritance planning, something to get an accountant or somebody knowledgeable in finance involved in, the sooner the better. And I do want to do a podcast on 
either both those things together or as two separate podcasts at some point. So yeah, that was something I will explore. And then Bilal, you also wanted to explore, there was one more thing that you mentioned just before you talked about what we just spoke about. So it's the fun side. It's the it's the exciting side here now. And I, I my view of exciting is slightly different. It depends on what you're what you want to invest in. Now, if your thing is watches, then there's certain investment classifications that as they grow, there's no tax due on them. So if you bought a Rolex at retail for seven thousand pounds, you sit on it for 15, 20 years, it's now worth sixty thousand pounds, but you've bought it, it's fine. Once you go to sell it, no tax due. Which is why watches are massively popular. Um same with some vintage cars, but if it's your car, there's certain classification, there's certain criteria you have to hit. It can't be a garage creep. You have to drive it. it. Has to be insured, so on and so forth. If you bought a Carrera GT, for instance, now cars might be your thing. Let's say, let's say you bought a Carrera GT for a steal, two hundred fifty thousand pounds. You bought it for two hundred fifty thousand pounds. You then sell it for five hundred grand. No taxes due. Um, same with art. Art is uh, NFTs and art. We, I'm not going to get into that, but the the money laundering aspect of it. But but for, from an asset, certain certain asset classifications where no tax is due, should you make a gain from a personal perspective from a limited company, they are. So, yeah, interesting. So let's talk watches. If you were to buy Rolexes through your limited company as investment pieces, as the shareholder, as the director of a limited company, you something you have something called a fiduciary responsibility. So you have a responsibility to look after the income, the expenditure, the assets of the company as uh, in the benefits of the shareholder. Therefore, if you're going to go buy all these Rolexes and you needed to put into a safety deposit box, you claim that as an expense. Any insurances, upkeep, maintenance, servicing to keep the asset in good life, good nick. Um, you could claim all of that as an expense. I see. I see. I see. I see. Okay. Yeah. Good. And so that's why it's worth having a conversation with your accountant. Exactly. Which is which just sort of wrap all that up. There's no one size fits all. It depends on your investment strategy. Depends on what your long term oh. goals are. Your medium term goals are the kind of asset you want to invest in, and your your risk profile. That all of that then factors into the kind of things you you want to do. But ultimately, the goal for this was to say there's more than one way to skin a cat. I love it. And you know what? So much gold dust in that podcast today. Bilal, we're coming up to the 40-minute mark. Is there anything that you'd like to say just to draw a line under proceedings today, just to put a cap on it? No, I think, uh, like, like I said, you know, th- these are very much blanket statements. If you want to know how any of this could benefit you, uh, feel free to reach out to us. So uh, message us on, on Facebook. It is, it is my account that you'll see on the Facebook account, so Bilal Ahmed. If you head over to Instagram at Heathkill Green, you'll find us there. We put out loads of content, loads of videos on things that you might find useful. There's a link in my bio that says, if you do want to sit down and have a chat about any of this, feel free to book in. And then I think I, I if I had hair, I'd probably lose it, but I think it's contributed to a lot, a lot of the whites in my chin, is April's the best time to start reviewing your position. That says the tax year starts in uh, April. So March is where you want to sit down and have a chat with your accountant, have a chat with us. Um, see, use it. I use it as a, as, as a health check that says you, if you want to hit the the, neck, the the ground running, and proactivity is key. Is don't don't do something and try to work out how you're going to undo it afterwards. Do it properly at the start, and then it makes life easy for everyone involved. Thank you so much, Bilal. I hope tax season isn't too overwhelming, and we will catch up again very soon. In a bit, my friend. Cheers, buddy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit follow or subscribe so you can stay up to date with information on new podcasts which are released weekly. Please also feel free to leave a positive review so others can learn about this podcast and benefit from it. I would also encourage any fans of the podcast to sign up to the free Facebook community from which the podcast originated. 
Please search Dentists Who Invest on Facebook and hit join to become part of a community of thousands of other dentists interested in improving their finances, well-being and investing knowledge. Looking forward to seeing you on there.